If you look at all of the mammals alive on Earth, 96% of all of the mammals alive on Earth are humans and our livestock. 4% are wild mammals. And with birds, 70% of all birds alive are our domestic birds, mostly chickens and turkeys and ducks and geese that are domesticated. The global food system is facing unparalleled challenges and changes. So, how can we reset for a better, more sustainable future? Introducing Control-Alt-Meat, the weekly podcast that explores the issues transforming the global food business. I'm your host, Katie Briefel. Come join me as I speak to the innovators and investors, policymakers and product developers, the scientists and the chefs, who are all on the front line reshaping the future of our food. This week's episode of Control Alt Meat is with Carl Safina, an ecologist and author of books and other writings about the human relationship with the natural world. Safina's lyrical non-fiction writing about the living world has won a MacArthur Genius Prize, among many others. He grew up raising pigeons, training hawks and owls, and spending as much time outside as he could. Safina's studies of seabirds earned him a PhD in ecology from Rutgers University. He is also the first endowed professor for nature and humanity at Stony Brook University and founder of the not-for-profit Safina Center. His writing appears in the New York Times, National Geographic, HuffPost and others, and his PBS series, Saving the Ocean, can be viewed online. Two of his books have been New York Times Notable Books of the Year, including his 2020 book, Becoming Wild, How Animal Cultures Raise Families, Create Beauty, and Achieve Peace. In this episode, we discuss what he's learned in his lifelong study of animals and the links he's drawn between animal and human consciousness. He says, we are much more related than we are different. Safina offers his perspective on how agriculture leads to devastating effects on the environment, along with his own personal experiences witnessing the dramatic changes to wildlife. But amongst his warnings about mass extinction and damage to natural habitats, the interview also offers an optimistic outlook if we can take the time to stop, observe, and make choices for a better future. Carl, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's great to have you. Oh, it's really a pleasure. You had a fascination with animals from a very young age and you were interested in studying how they lived and looking at their behavior more closely. Could you talk a little bit about what inspired that? I don't know, really. I, I just always really loved animals from the time I was quite a little boy. And we lived in Brooklyn, New York, not a very animal rich environment, <laughs> just a city kid. But um, I just always had a fascination. My parents would take me sometimes to the Bronx Zoo or the New York Aquarium or the uh, Museum of Natural History in New York City in Manhattan. I always wanted to have whatever little pets I could get my hands on, which wasn't too much. Some fish in a small tank, maybe a lizard or two every now and then. And then uh, when I was seven years old, I started raising homing pigeons and I eventually, you know, I acquired other pets and I didn't make much of a distinction in those days between domestic animals or wild animals or captive animals. To me, they were just all incredibly interesting and I always wanted to be around them. 
That's amazing. And what were the, do you remember any sort of early learnings from those sort of formative years? Is there anything that particularly stood out for you? Yeah, very much so. I would sometimes just stand inside my pigeon coop watching pigeons and we, you know, we would let them out every day and they would fly around and then they would come back and they would eat and feed their babies. And it seemed to me like their lives were very much like our lives. We, we lived across the yard in our own coop with different couples in different apartments, just like in the, just like in the pigeon coop. And sometimes there were squabbles and the parents would leave for part of the day and come back and feed their babies. And um, it just seemed to me like basically we were living the same life in different ways. I never, I never really um, had any reason to see it differently. And you've then gone on to publish is it almost 10 or more books and a TED talk that has received 2 million views, um, if not more. And you've become a sort of expert in the space on how human animal behavior and how animals think and feel. And particularly the, I want to talk about the book Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel. And you kind of decided to draw similarity, as you say, between the way that animals think, animal consciousness and humans, and actually making the argument that they're a lot closer than I guess we think. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. Sure. Well, you know, when we say animals, we have to remember that animals is everything from sponges all the way to whales and apes and humans that they're all animals but we we think when we say animals we usually think about vertebrates you know mammals and birds and lizards and fish and we're all very closely related we have the same basic body plan we have the same skeleton we have the same organs we have the same neurotransmitting chemicals we have the same hormones the things that create moods and create motivation are the same chemicals in all of those uh, animals, including humans. And, you know, we're different in various ways, but we're, we're not totally different. We're much more related than we are different. And you've written before about it animals and who animals. Could you explain a little bit about what the distinction is between those? Yeah, a lot of people call animals it. And I was thinking about that word and why we think of ourselves as who, you know, who, who are we? We are who we are because of our relationships with others and our, our relationships, you know, in the world and in society. There are quite a few other animals where there are social groups where, where they are somebody and they have relationships. They have long-term pair bonds, long-term family bonds. They have relationships as parents or as offspring, and that's how they know who they are. And some of those relationships last for many decades in things like apes and whales and elephants and some others. So I say that all of those animals that are defined by their relationships are who animals. And then you might have things like a mosquito, which doesn't really exist by social relationships. Maybe that's more of an it. Yeah, you've kind of talked about the fact that they have a, a consciousness of themselves and their relationships and a, and a sense of culture as well. How would you explain the fact that these animals have culture? What does that actually mean? Culture is the behaviors and the preferences and the aesthetics and the attractions that you learn socially and that flow socially. That's what culture is. Humans are very cultural. We don't invent our own culture. We learn it. That's why in any given culture, people have the same kind of dress, but it, it differs from other cultures, different dress, different music, different 
religions, there are sports cultures, you know, people who either like American football or <laughs> European football, for instance, and are very fanatical about that. Those are all <laughs> cultural things. When, when we talk about culture, we think about these endpoints of culture, these products of culture, but that's not culture. Those are just products of culture. Culture is the things that we learn socially. And why do we have culture? We have culture because it answers the question of how do we live? How do we live in a place? What do we do here? And if we all understand that, then we can all cooperate and do things together. If we don't all understand things the same way, language is, is a very cultural thing. You learn a language. Mm. If you can't understand somebody, then it's hard to cooperate with them. And, and this you know, runs up and down the line of cultural things. If you go into a house of worship and it's not a religion that you know anything about, you won't know what to do. So we have culture to help us understand how to live in a place and to let us cooperate in living there. But a lot of culture is very arbitrary. That's a really important thing to understand. The, the, things, the ways that we dress that look normal to us could easily be the dress of a totally different culture that looks more normal to them. You know, we might say, oh, it looks really exotic or it looks really strange or their music sounds weird. Mm. But to them, it's just their music or their, you know, their hat, you know. Yeah. And, and you've said in the past that you you try to avoid anthropomorphizing animals and instead try to just understand and interpret what they're doing. Could you explain how you go about doing that? Well, anthropomorphizing is projecting human thoughts and emotions onto other animals. I actually think that's often a first decent guess at what they might be doing and why, but they may have some of the same feelings that we have. They may have some of the same thoughts that we have. When, when I'm looking forward to going for a walk with my dogs, they immediately pick up on all the cues. I may be putting on a jacket or picking up my keys. They want to go for a walk also. So, you know, we're having pretty much the same thought. Sometimes I'm writing and I'll, I'll have the door open now that it's summertime and two of the dogs will come and visit me. Well, you know, sometimes I like to be with them. Sometimes they decide they like to be with me. There's a similar kinds of thoughts. So I'm not projecting. I'm just observing that there are many similarities and that if a dog seems happy, it's, it's a happy dog. And if it seems frightened or afraid, it's frightened. You don't see a dog acting frightened when it's around people it's known for a really long time and everybody gets along and, you know, you don't see them doing things that are inappropriate or don't make any sense. They make perfect sense and they make perfect sense because they are acting in ways that we act and understand. And are there any instances from other animals where they display behaviors that we could anthropomorphize and rationalize in a certain way, but really it's a little bit different to that? Can you think of any examples of that? Yeah, I think there are a lot of things like that. And I think that people, you know, the less people know about animals, the more prone they are to maybe making a mistake like that. I remember once I was tagging birds and we were catching them by putting up a very fine net and two birds were flying with one another, one, one of them hit the net first and the other started hovering. And um, my father, who, who was there, he said, look, that one's trying to get his friend out of the net. But it didn't look that way to me. It looked like they, the second one was simply trying to figure out what had just happened. Wasn't really making it, you know, didn't understand the situation well enough to try to get its companion out of the net. It was confused about what was going on and wasn't sure what it should do. So I think people can make 
mistakes like that and attribute things in, in ways that are incorrect. But I also think that insisting that there's nothing going on that they can't think or they can't feel, that's really incorrect. And I think that's the worst, the worst of the two mistakes. Because some of your work posits that the human-centric um, thinking that we've had for, for many years is incorrect in the sense that animals are in fact incredibly intelligent. You look at sort of birds who can create tools and whales who have incredibly complex um, communication systems. And what, in what ways do you try and sort of debunk that, that thinking? Well, I think the main thing is that a lot of other animals have lives and that they value their lives and that their imperatives are very similar to ours. They need to find enough food, stay alive, keep their babies alive. We have a pair of owls in our backyard that just fledged a brood of young ones. And uh, one of the owls was a, an orphan that we raised and released. So Aww. she knows us really well. And we, we give her food in the evening. And um, she comes looking for the food. She knows what she's doing. She knows she's coming to look for food from us. And then she takes it into the forest and she calls her young ones. She very much appears to know what she's doing. She knows she's coming to get food, going to feed her babies. When I watch her feeding the babies, what's kind of surprising to me is that she seems to take some care about making sure that the different ones get enough food and, and doesn't just sit, you know, mindlessly pulling pieces of food off and giving them to whoever's closest. Sometimes she moves to one who hasn't gotten any and starts feeding that one. So, you know, these are some of the things, but you, you have to watch for a very long time to start actually seeing what they're doing. Carl, did I hear you named your, um, your little family of owls, the who? Yes, the who, that's what we call them. <laughs> Very good. I like it. My wife contributed that. And some of your work is is examining humanity's place in the world and their and its relationship with animals. What do you think we're getting wrong at the moment? And how? And you've talked about the need to to watch and observe. What else? What else do you think we need to be doing more of? Well, we really need to be making sure that they don't get pushed off the end of the earth and start to really go extinct in massive numbers. I mean, we have what's called the extinction crisis because the rate of extinction is about a thousand times what it would have been pre-industrial, pre-civilization. Mm. And uh, most wild animals are at their lowest population levels ever. The area they have to live in is mostly disappearing and degrading and shrinking. If you look at all of the mammals alive on Earth, 96% of all of the mammals alive on Earth are humans and our livestock. 4% are wild mammals. And with birds, 70% of all birds alive are our domestic birds, mostly chickens and turkeys and ducks and geese that are domesticated. This is a tremendous, tremendous change from the way that the world was, and I would say the way it's supposed to be. It's a complete imbalance, and many, many, many of those species have declined enormously in our lifetimes. There are many species that are, you know, the biggest, most famous ones we know, elephants, lions, giraffes, pandas, chimpanzees, things like that, where their population has declined something like 70 or 80% since I've been around, that's 
that's a catastrophe. And how big a role do you think animal agriculture is playing in this? I mean, you've hinted at the the number of animals that are sort of are released for our livestock. How how central do you think that is to the problem? Well, like the current I, food system. Animal agriculture is a big part of it, but agriculture generally, because we have something like um, nearing 8 billion people, there's three times as many people alive now as there were around the around the time I was born, or just just before I was born, it's about tripled since then. And, you know, fly across the United States, for instance, and look down, mm. you just see tiles of farms, 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 farms. A lot of that is growing food for people, and a lot of it is growing food for cows and pigs and chickens. A lot of the fishing in the ocean is for fish that are converted to food for cows and pigs and chickens. So animal farming puts a big strain on on a you know on a per hectare or per acre basis but just feeding as many people as there are i mean i've seen many wild places get plowed under places that were wilderness when i was young are farms to the horizon now and and some of those places had the biggest and the wildest animals in the world on them you know including elephants and giraffes and things like that yeah, it's devastating. I've I've flown over the US and some of the states as well, and you can't. It's unbelievable as far as you, the eye can see. It's just farmland, and it is it is startling. Right, right. And you've called us to sort of reevaluate our relationship to animals and to the environment. What what are your main suggestions for trying to reverse this trend or to tackle it? Well, we make a lot of decisions every day about what kind of people we're going to be, what we're going to eat, how we're going to live. Are we going to, you know, waste a lot of water or a lot of energy? Are we going to be mindful of what we do? Um, what are we going to drive? How are we going to travel? How many children are we going to have? What what organizations might we be able to contribute to and how we talk to our friends and what we what we talk about and who we vote for. All of these things have effects. And I think there's a big difference in a lifetime that is lived trying to do what we can do and um, or just saying, well, screw it, I don't really care. I think that's a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. And you've done some incredible work in trying to help with ocean conservation. Um, could you talk a little bit about what you've done so far? Yeah, well, when I was um, studying seabirds and and also just doing a lot of fishing for, for my own food and for recreation, I noticed that the fish seemed to be declining year after year it just seemed like there were fewer and fewer fish and i realized that how did you was... notice that firstly well you just don't catch as much right i see you know, really that... just in your personal experience that's how apparent it was right. wow yes. okay right and then i started looking into it and i started to realize the scale of fishing was mind-boggling way beyond anything i ever imagined there were actually reports showing that fish had declined enormously. And I, I got very involved with that, with campaigns against drift netting, for instance. In, in the 1980s, there were about a thousand boats that were using drift nets that were often 30 miles long. That's Can, 30, you, can you explain what that, the damage that that does? Well, it's 30,000 miles of netting in the ocean every night, catching anything that swims into it from the surface down to about 30 feet or 50 feet or something like, you know, depending on the dimensions of those nets. But it was devastating to fish and squid and dolphins. And 
it started to make populations plummet. Also, just creating an incredible amount of misery as these animals died and drowned. There was a, a worldwide outcry. The United Nations banned those nets. I, I was involved in the later stages of those campaigns because, well, I was the one who publicized and, and helped to discover that they had moved into the Atlantic Ocean, something that was unknown before I got involved. And then we then we worked on some campaigns to overhaul the law that governs fishing in U.S. ocean waters. We were very successful with that. And a lot of the fish populations in U.S. Uh, waters are recovering. That's incredible. And that's that's really great. You know, that's been about in the last 20 years. But our efforts internationally, I would say, um, other than the Driftnet campaign, were mixed. And we accomplished some good things to prevent sea turtles and seabirds from getting caught in fishing gear. But our attempts to get the fish catch down to much more sustainable levels or to sustainable levels mostly failed. And so there are really very few countries that have well-managed fisheries. I I would say it's the US, New Zealand, Australia. Um, The EU has improved, but I'm not sure I would say it's sustainable. And then um, all, all around Africa and Asia, it's still a terrible situation, increasing depletion. And then and then we have coral reefs dying. I mean, all these mm. other all these other major problems, acidification of the ocean. Uh, yeah, isn't it coral well, reefs? Have very depressed talking. Lost like me. half of the living mass um, yeah. is is gone. Basically, coral reefs. That's right. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah, half, half of the living mass of coral reefs is gone, and that. That happened. I was out of graduate school with a PhD before anybody said there's a problem with coral reefs. That's how mm. that's how you know recently it is. Yeah. Not, it's not been happening for centuries. It's just a few decades. It's in my lifetime. I remember people talking about it slowly happening, and now it's yeah, it's it's unbelievable. And so you worked on a documentary um, series, Saving the Ocean. Could you talk a little bit about that project? Yeah, I, I got together with um, a guy named John Andrew. He's done a tremendous amount of television, mostly nature-related television, the Nova series for decades and a lot of other great stuff. And we talked about how a lot of nature programs, they make you fall in love with a place. And then in the last five minutes, they show how it's all getting destroyed. And, you know, it's uh, it's so depressing that a lot of people don't even want to tune in or um, or they just leave with a terrible feeling and and um, not not a great way to communicate some of these things. So we thought we would invert that and we would start with the problem as the premise mm-hmm. and find people who are solving the problem. That's why it's called saving the ocean, not called threats to the ocean. It's called saving the ocean because it's about people who were doing that. You know, they were restoring habitat. They were working on uh, sea turtle conservation. They were using clean fishing techniques that were sustainable. And there you go, Carl, some positivity. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> Got it. And so the response has been has been good so far. What have you what positive outcomes have come out of it? Well, you know, we we just profiled some of these people who are doing really great work trying to inspire people who are viewing it and it's they're all available now. You can just go online and look for my name save and saving the ocean and it's uh, 10 episodes. Um, we wanted to inspire other people to do similar kinds of things. And um, one thing about these kind of projects that are creative, like doing a book or a film, it it goes out in the world kind of on its own. And you never really know how it affects people unless they tell you. And um, 
sometimes I get some very, very nice letters. And I'm sure that there are lots of people like I, I was very inspired by books when I was young. I never wrote to the author. You know, the author just seemed like this remote, unreachable person. I wouldn't even know how to get in touch with them. You know, so these works are a little like children. They go out in the world, they have their own lives and their own yeah. relationships with people. That's a really nice way of putting it. And I'd, I'd love to talk a little bit about the writing process and the artistic process, because your work is quite lyrical. And there seems to be an interplay between the science and then almost poetry sometimes when you write. Could you talk about um, the relationship between the two and how they complement each other? Well, I'm trying to communicate. And if you just write a report with all the facts, nobody would be very interested in reading that. Very few people would be very interested in reading that. So I'm also trying to, you know, infuse it with with the power of the, the beauty and what's at stake and make it um, a real reading experience, a, an experience where you can feel like you're there, which is the magic of words on a page. You know, it, it can at times transport you. So I'm, I'm really trying to make an emotional connection, which I think is actually more important than the information. The inf you know, there's a lot of information around, mm. but if you don't feel it and you're not motivated by love, you, you probably won't feel inspired or be motivated to do much of anything. So I want to make that connection with you. It's a really interesting approach. I think you're right. I think when people can tell stories um, with the science and the data, it connects with people and will provoke more action. And talking about action, what do you think you've you've spoken about how certain continents, you know, there's major problems in Asia and Africa with fishing. How do you see the best ways that we can try and tackle this? Is it through policy? Is it through consumer choices? How can we move the dial significantly on these issues? I do think it's all of those things. I, I don't think, you know, I don't think we need to think about what's the one thing because there isn't a one thing that we can do. I do think there is one major thing that is probably the the biggest lever point, the biggest fulcrum. If you look at the population trajectories of different countries and, and where they are right now, which countries are still growing fast, which countries have basically stopped growing. A lot of it has to do with where women have become full citizens in the last generation or two. Now, when I say full citizens and the last generation or two, think of my mother, for instance. When my mother was a young adult, women in the United States could not have a bank account unless a man signed for her. Women were often not admitted to colleges and universities if the application showed that they were women. In fact, my PhD advisor, aware of that, put only her first initial got accepted. And then when she showed up, they disaccepted her. It's incredible. That would, of course, be illegal now. But that's what I mean by gaining full citizenship, the right to do whatever you feel like doing as much as anybody has a right to, right to education, a right to owning a business, inheriting money and property, having a mm. bank account, getting a loan, driving, you know, all of these things. And that's and in the U.S., yeah, not still longer. not universal around the world. And, you know, in my in my parents' lifetime, a, a lot of these things, uh, and some of them even in my lifetime, a lot of these things became very normalized, you know. And where that happens, women, they basically indulge in the secret of rich people, which is smaller families give you bigger lives, right? 
And so people who have power to make their own decisions, they choose to have a smaller number of children who can be raised better with more resources, more attention, more of what it takes to live and thrive and have a, a great, healthy life. Yeah. That, I think, the rights and empowerment of women is probably the single biggest lever. But then, as I said, all the other things that we do, who, what we will eat, where we want to shop, who we want to buy things from, that makes a big difference as well. And it's really interesting you've made that link. Do you think it's just to do with um, growing population, um, women's full citizenship, or do you think when they achieve full citizenship, they also make other decisions around resources and, and animals? Like, are there any other links in that sense? Well, I think it's I think it's the latter. I think you know I think when you are able to decide, you make decisions, and when your life is just served to you and you're told this is how you will do it, what are you going to do? And what other things can we as consumers um, or business owners? do to try and reverse some of these trends? Well, I, for instance, I, I try to shop for food very locally. We have supermarkets here where everything comes from far away and almost everything is in plastic. Or I can go to a greengrocer where it's all grown on farms on Long Island and um, none of it is in plastic at all. And a lot of it is local. And I know that I'm supporting a family very directly. I think things like that matter. They matter to me. Yeah. And how can we make that, do you think, more accessible? Because often lower income families um, resort to larger discount supermarkets, for example, to try and make ends meet. Do you feel hopeful that we can try and make this more democratic? Well, you know, a lot of that starts by what is not democratic. When, when people are kept poor because they're not paid well enough to have really a living wage, and yet th their labor is producing profit, that's not fair to begin with. So it's not just a matter of how do we get better food for poor people, it's how, how do we get better lives for people who are now poor so that they're not poor and they're paid properly, you know, within the realm of reason for the profits that their work produces, instead of strategies that have happened in the last few decades where corporations have realized that if they, pour, if they pay people really badly, they can just go on food stamps and then the rest of us pay for their food instead of them being paid for the work that they're doing. So, you know, a lot of these things are problems at a, at a very deeper level than just how do you get better food for poor people? It's, you know, how do you get better lives for people, fairer lives that are more democratic to begin with? And you obviously have a, a real passion for understanding how animals think and feel. We could argue some people don't make that connection, right? Maybe they haven't spent a lot of time observing animals like you have, or because of the way that, cult the way that culture is designed to sort of desensitize you from the animals that you're eating. How can we how can we better help people make that connection so that they can see in a similar way that you can? You've had that consciousness shift. Well, that's a little hard for a lot of people, but it has to do with um, how we educate people in our schools. I think, you know, this kind of thing is basically not taught as far as I know. If you have children, I think it's really important to give them a lot of experiences and to put them really in touch with other living things. You can take them to nature centers, nature museums, watch really good shows on TV that, that are, you know, actually very, very instructive and often very beautiful. 
and make sure it has to do with teaching and it's part of culture. Is our culture going to be compassionate and, and informed about who we are on the planet with or just increasingly separated from all of the rest of life on earth by our own ignorance? That's, that's really a choice. And um, I think the better choice is obvious. You've you know? spoken about the sort of the isolation that humans feel often in these big cities that are overcrowded, but paradoxically, people feel disconnected and isolated in a way that animals, because of their sense of culture and community, don't feel unless they're obviously put in captivity. So it's an interesting observation in that sense. Yeah, well, the human mind evolved as a social mind in groups of people where you know, basically everybody knew each other or you knew a lot of the people there. It's not normal to be in a situation where you're mostly among strangers and you are mostly anonymous. And I think that that's part of the reason that people feel such existential stress and strain all the time. We don't know who they are or don't know people what they want to do in to, life. Yeah, they yeah. feel disconnected because they are disconnected. And our mind needs connection. That's what makes us human beings. And that's what makes us feel normal. Absolutely. You've spoken about the amazing people you've showcased in your documentary who are taking positive action and saving the ocean. What other things do you feel optimistic about looking ahead to the future? What groups of people or campaigners or innovators have you seen who you're inspired by? Well, I think about things that looked really, really bad when I was younger. Some of my favorite animals, for instance, or even some great wild places that were threatened. But when I was young, you know, these hard pesticides like DDT and other pesticides had wiped out some of my favorite birds like peregrine falcons and ospreys and mm. eagles from most of their range. And people thought they were going to go extinct and were doomed, and there was nothing that could be done to save them. But a few people did not take that lying down, and they worked very hard to get laws that banned the indiscriminate use of those pesticides. And other people worked to um, breed some of those birds in captivity for release or to move eggs around from nests where the eggs were not breaking to nests in places where there were still a few old adults that uh, had broken eggs, so they would at least raise young in, in a larger part of their range. It was just a few people working on these things, but it worked. And now these birds are really abundant where it's I amazing. live. I mean, there are six osprey nests within a mile of my house on an island where there were none when I was in college. Bald eagles are repopulating Long Island after being absent for 60 years. There are peregrine falcons at, at the highest known nesting density in the world are living in Manhattan in New York City. So we can see that things that looked hopeless, really hopeless, can be turned around. Whales, people thought that a lot of the whales were just going to go extinct. Some of them were really saved in the nick of time, but we've got whale recoveries where I never saw whales when I was a kid. I certainly, ne I never saw whales from the beach until a few years ago, but now because humpback whales have recovered so much and some of the fish that they eat have recovered so much, we see humpback whales frequently when we're walking on the beach. Something that if you had asked me, uh, are you, are you able to see whales from the beach? I would say, no, we don't. We don't. They're not there. They don't live there. And anyway, there are so few of them. So I've seen things get vastly better than I thought they could get. And that's what inspires me. It is inspiring. 
And there's a huge push to put an end to things like factory farming, which we know have devastating impacts on our health and on the environment. What, how big a role do you think trying to close that industry down is going to have? Well, I think the more effective way of doing it would be to reduce the demand. And there are probably more vegetarians and and vegans in you know in the West in in Europe and in North America than ever before. A lot more people eating less meat than ever before, and um, we have some very clever people who have worked on these substitutes that taste mm. exactly like meat, like Beyond Burgers and Impossible Burgers. You know, I've I've had these things. You and I've served them to friends of mine mm. who simply love, they love hamburgers, and they say you know they can't tell. The difference and they know it's better for the environment and it's better for their health. And so um, that's a really great strategy. Absolutely. Carl, if people want to find out more about the incredible work that you're doing, where should they go? Well, the easiest thing is two websites. One is carlsafina.org. That's me. <laughs> and the other is my small not-for-profit organization, which is called The Safina Center. It's at safinacenter.org just safinacenter.org. And you can see the really great work that our people are doing, trying to connect the science and the information and people's emotional cores. That's what we're really trying to do. We're trying to really reach people emotionally about the living world and what's at stake. And um, we have some just fantastic people doing some great work. And you've talked about um, the power of storytelling, these forms to try and affect people and make that emotional connection. Has there been a single book or a film that you read or watched that really sort of was an unlock for you that you would recommend to others? Well, it was a long time ago now when I read books that really you know, I felt changed my life. And some of them are classics. Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring. All of her books are great and they stand up over time. Aldo Leopold's book, A Sand County Almanac, which was the first time in all of Western philosophy. It's not a philosophy book, but it has a very philosophical ending. First time in all of philosophy that anybody in the West came out and said, we are part of the living world. It's a pretty brief book, a beautifully written book um, and, a, and a true classic. A lot of Barry Lopez's work, including some very recent work of his and um, a hero of mine, Peter Matheson. And um, another person who's writing I, I loved when I was young, John McPhee. So um, those are some of the people. Wonderful. Thank you, Carl. And highly recommend listeners check out your book as well, Beyond Words. Thank you so much, Carl. It's been yeah. an absolute pleasure mm -hmm. having you on the podcast. Right. Well, it's been a tremendous pleasure being with you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Control Alt Meet. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to share your favorite episodes on social media to help us reach more listeners like you. You can also visit controlaltmeet.com to learn more.